0: Hi, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. I was lucky enough to have a conversation with my friend, the distinguished astrophysicist, Lord Martin Rees, a few years ago on our podcast, but he more recently came out with a very interesting book about saving the world with science. And uh, I thought it was a great opportunity to have him back to talk about the subjects in the book and to have a wide ranging conversation far beyond astrophysics and its own background about uh, the areas where science uh, can impact on our lives and our future. And it was, as always, a very informative and and lively discussion. He's a remarkable scholar, human being, and a real pleasure to talk to. And uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And you can watch it ad-free on our Substack site if you're a, a Substack subscriber to Critical Mass. And I hope you'll consider doing that because those funds support the Origins Project Foundation. If, you, if you're not a subscriber, you can uh, uh, watch it on YouTube. Eventually, uh, if you're a subscriber to our YouTube channel, or of course, listen to it on any podcast listening site, no matter how you watch it or listen to it. I really hope you'll be informed and educated uh, as much as I am. Every time I talk to Martin Reese. So enjoy this origins podcast with Martin Reese. Let me just say first, thank you for, for coming back, uh, martin this has been a fascinating conversation i really think it's worth delving into for the most part of the second half of your book it's about sort of the operation of science itself but but i do but 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 i do want to touch on a few issues just before we do that on ai that you mentioned that i think are intriguing um uh the, the you know you you do demonstrate as 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 we have discussed that we both you and i think that that um A.I. is actually extremely useful and not so much of a so not in principle, not immediately a terror and uh, like many people suggest, or an existential risk in the near term, um, as long as one is careful. Uh, the the. Um, the one thing that uh, let me hit, there's a few statements you make that 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 got me thinking again and or at least maybe I disagree with some we've already talked about the win win versus win lose possibility. And in principle, AI will allow a win-win world, but I think in practice, it'll probably too often involve a win-lose world. Mm-hmm. Um, um, being um, being um, pessimistic in that regard um, of just about economic behavior and foresight. But you, you, when you talk about one of the limitations of AI, you say something interesting to me. You said learning, first of all, let's, let's actually step back. When people think of AI, much of what AI does is not intelligence in any sense it's sorting it's it's it it's it's it, uh, it can sort and 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 much more efficiently than human beings and that gives it a great deal of power in certain areas but it's not it's not cognition in the same sense that we think of that you agree with me there
1: yes well it is calculation of a kind isn't it and optimizing uh, yeah. but uh, but the main advantage is it can do these things about a million times faster yeah but of course there are some things it can't do at all
0: (laughs) yeah and 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 exactly there's some things it can't do at all there's certainly some things it doesn't do yet even when it appears to be very thoughtful it's really just doing a a a very fast sorting of information that it's gotten and you know and and i guess one can have a debate and as you know my new book i talk about consciousness about whether that's really thinking, but I think it's really just uh, it's just data analysis that's very very fast and that's great and we and it's very useful for humans to have such things and they can do it much better. For example, you you did talk about AI taking over mind-numbing jobs, but but as far as I can see, it would do a much better job and many other things, including a lot of medicine, diagnostic uh, medicine. Yes, and yep. and the question is, and I let me ask it because I've well people the problem with ai is that it often learns the most effective route to something but but unlike you and i solving a, an astrophysics problem we don't know how it did it it's not as if there's some logical clear way that it can it can tell you why this is the best uh, best route mm-hmm. so the question is if if ai became diagnostic doctors and i think they do a better job than doctors on the average at some point in the future yeah. um in, in terms of giving clinical diagnosis of treatment. Would people be willing to take a, 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 a diagnosis, and a, and particularly a proposed treatment, from a black box without knowing why?
1: Um, well, I think they should be cautious about that because uh, although on average it may do a good job, there could be some uh, hidden um, uh, bugs in the program. So it's sometimes... Show some bias or does something wrong. So uh, I think it's uh, very dangerous to leave an AI to make decisions that affect us as humans, um, even in minor ways. I mean, whether it's in um, uh, um, assessing job applicants, uh, whether it's uh, deciding if you're fit for parole if you're in prison, um, or whether you're credit worthy or things of that kind, or indeed whether you need surgery for some operation. It's true that um, uh, in, uh, um, in the case of radiology, the machine could look at 30,000 lung- lungs and in a sense could do a better job there, but uh, one hopes there's some real doctor there to verify.
0: Well, I uh, I, it's interesting you have more faith in real doctors. I mean, the point is that doctors can also have biases and agendas. Wouldn't wouldn't the the recommendation be simply to do what you tell people to do now, which is get a second opinion? Don't get one AI's opinion, but get another, get a second one. As long as you're independent, as long as you're not programmed the same.
1: No, that's a good idea, yes. Yeah. Mm.
0: Okay, okay. Now, you did say learning about human behavior will be difficult because acquiring, quote, common sense... Won't be for e- so easy for them. It involves observing actual people in real homes or workplaces. I'm wondering if that's also maybe not true in the sense that an AI who reads enough history, or learns enough, or looks at the newspapers, uh, will will inevitably sort of learn about how real people work in real places. And so, so wouldn't wouldn't it be no more difficult to learn about sort of how humans tend to respond to things? By looking at millions and millions of human responses in in literature and newspapers, as it is to learn how whether a stoplight or whether a, a bicycle is a bicycle or a hydrant, if you're a self-driving car. Yes,
1: <clears throat> I, I think I think it would, but I've, of course, the, um, uh, the 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 problem really is: um, uh, do, do you have enough enough data? And uh, and also, I think the fundamental question of um, uh, w- whether it's got any sort of concept of uh, of things or people because this has come up recently in this this new um, uh, uh, one that can write connected prose and all that. Uh, what it has done is looked at um, billions of pages of text and knows the correlation between words and phrases, etc., and can package them together. But there's no sense in which it really understands the things that those words refer to. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's yeah. an imp- impediment. So. Um, although the machines can 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 do a lot, and they they can, as you say, they they can uh, help with diagnosis, mm-hmm. and um, they can uh, deal with something which is all numbers, like uh, the stock market,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or um, deal with the um, uh, the economy. And I say in my book that they could uh, give a planned economy in China of a kind that Marx would only dream of, because. <laughs> They they can analyze all the data which okay. they have in China, and so it can it can do that. But um, the, the question is, does it really have a sense of of, of real people?
0: Yeah, no. It, it, in 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 fact, as you probably I I know since you wrote a blurb for my book, uh, my new book, and, and I you know, in thinking about consciousness and learning a lot about it, one of the one of the remarks that was made by neuroscientists, which I think is probably quite important, is that you wouldn't expect AI or something you might call AI to really be at the point to know about this if they didn't have sensory input it would part of a central part of our consciousness is being able to sense yes. the world around Back. us not just mm. read about it and 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 that's probably i think a true statement that 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 that's probably yeah. an essential part
1: that's yeah. right that's why uh kurzweil and his ilk uh imagining us being downloaded into a machine i mean it wouldn't really be us in any important sense yeah
0: i i exactly i i I think i'm i I, we're certainly in agreement there and i think that uh we are in agreement however um we're also in agreement of something that you've written about um uh and i have too which is that as whatever it is it's the best way it's the best stuff to send into space much better than human beings Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. yeah. And, uh,
1: it's all there, but it can do. And, uh, uh, but but also it it can, um, help us in science. I mean, we know it can play
0: games,
1: chess and go, but it could do protein folding, as we know already. And, um, I don't know if you agree, but I think it's quite on the cards that, uh, it may tell us whether some version of string theory is correct. Because, oh, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, sure. Not maybe string theory, but certainly Feynman's goal of having of understanding the quantum world by using quantum computers when he proposed them is is i yes, think yes. i think absolute in fact i'm going to have a long conversation with a uh, another mm-hmm. podcast next that i'm recording with uh, my colleague uh, my former colleague when i was at harvard and friend uh, john presco who um oh yes who, yep. and we'll talk about that but i think i think yes. i think it, i'm not sure string theory so much but uh maybe yes, but, yes. but understanding how to literally understand quantum systems it's which is something we'll literally never be able to do without them at some level is is Ooh, a definite yeah. potential use of quantum computers absolutely
1: but, but i wasn't thinking of the quantum computer i was just uh, thinking uh, that uh, the, the uh manipulation of geometry in oh, 10 dimensions Oh, oh yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah
0: and, but i uh, guess
1: i'm you yeah, can do it much faster and then if it spews out at the end the right mass for the electron and all that then right. we know there's something in what is done, of and course, even though we never have an understanding of it.
0: Yeah, that that's right. That was always the goal of string theory. I still think that's not even going to happen with a, a, a computer. What it may be able to tell us is the whether it's mathematically consistent. But I, I guess I'm old-fashioned enough to think that at some point there'll need to be more physical input before uh, it won't. It won't be pure mathematics, in my opinion. But we'll see. Maybe. I, I, I think, uh, and if anything's, you know, this is an aside, but I think you would uh, probably agree with me. If anything, the more we learn about string theory. The more we learn that it doesn't pick out a, uni- a universe that, necess- even even if we understand it, which is limited, that the the direction seems to be that there's not that that it won't pick out a universe that looks like ours in general, even if it could. That yeah, um, yeah yeah. Any case, um, one of the things that you say actually when you talk about risks in general before I leave AI is the statement that um, um. uh Let's see. Um, uh, Oh, here we go. Um, That cyber experts furthering the beneficent use of AI should avoid scenarios where there seems even a minuscule chance of a machine, quote unquote, taking over. I guess, again, I'm not even as worried about that. Uh, I'm not worried about that. We we give ourselves over to machines all the time. It's or it's just a, we're not used to it, and we'll get more used to it and more comfortable. I I was in a in Phoenix where they have a company that where you can call it like Uber, where you call a self driving car, and it took me from one place to another, and I let it. I I just gave myself into that. But moreover, it, there's a long history. I think we just have to get used to it, and I think the old earliest example is an elevator, right? I mean, you get in an elevator and you have no control over where you're going. you assume that 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 tiny computer. I remember when I was a kid, I built a little computer set and it showed me how an elevator was a tiny computer. It knows that it's going to take you to floor number three when you ask for it, but you don't have any control over it. It doesn't bother yeah. you, though, does it? And I think we'll just get used to it, letting computers take over more and more and and yes. certain tasks. And so I don't see it's always a danger um, in that regard, I guess. Well, I mean, let me say I'm not an
1: expert at all on this subject. Yeah, but uh, uh, it's it's not crazy, is it, to imagine that um, it, it could um, have an influence on the on the world stock markets? Uh
0: huh. Yeah. And uh, uh,
1: and, 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 cause, and cause some some catastrophe to the financial system. Yeah, because but I'm, the,
0: I but but I but I think as you as that quote said, I'm just I guess I'm. I'm at least as worried about natural stupidity as I am about artificial intelligence. Because oh, yeah. humans have had a pretty good job, done a pretty good job of producing stock market disasters and housing bubbles and other things. Yes. So yeah, yeah, it could happen, just like a, a self-driving car could have an accident, but yeah. but um you know, that's a risk we take. I I don't think that's a unique risk necessarily of AI, in my opinion. Anyway, I guess I'm more blasé about it than some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the you know the example i used at the end of my last book which still resonates with me is the is the example of plato and others who when written language became became available were worried that storytelling would end with the with the invention of writing and 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 and, you know it's just a different world it's and and that doesn't necessarily have to be worse but you talk about how science the, the the bulk of the rest of your book is talking about how science can indeed try and ensure that at least the world is 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 as good as it is now, if not better. And wh- how science can help us. And we both agree. We're both unabashed evangelists for science and technology. Science has made the world a better place. Um, and um, and one of the things you emphasize in this regard, which I think is important, is science is valued often most because of technology, but in fact. The, the scientific ideas themselves are, 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 are a, 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 a fundamental triumph of being human. And as you say, quite apart from the impact on our lives, it's also surely a cultural deprivation not to appreciate the panorama offered by modern cosmology or Darwinian evolution. And I tend to think that it's the cultural impact of science on the way we think of ourselves as human beings. That is at least as important, if not more important than the technology that science creates and people often just forget that aspect of science and so science is only useful if it produces something.
1: Well, I mean, I I agree with you that uh, uh, speaking as intellectuals, we would think that way, but uh, uh, if you take the average, uh, the average person, um, they they may not appreciate very much about the. concepts of science but they certainly uh, know what aspects of their present lives are a consequence of the application of science
0: oh yeah well I, i'm I'm not even sure that's true i think people don't realize that, that it's science that's quantum mechanics no. that's operating the my iphone and 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 may, i wish they did in, in some sense but 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 i don't know about that appreciation it seems to me that you know that that at its heart science is an intellectual activity that's like music and literature
2: okay. that
0: that should be celebrated it happens to have that amazing spin off of having made our lives better by creating technology yes. but mm-hmm. but if you think about what it means to be human sure it's nicer to have a modern more comfortable life and being able to talk to you across the ocean and all the things and but but thinking of my own humanity i think it's it's been impacted as much by the scientific revolutions the last 500 years as it has by the greatest music and and literature i don't know yes. what
1: you... well i think to uh realize that the the world is understandable and it's not uh a mysterious spirits and all that uh so we don't need to uh to worry in the way that uh people in the pre-scientific era worried about uh uh, uh disasters happening so we understand there's some rationality and repeatability in yeah. nature which is, um, uh, a feature of science obviously
0: which uh, changed and, the world yeah. Yeah. yeah is that people you know the famous some historian it, saying it, that yeah. newton caused the end of the burning of witches but i don't know if it's really true but no but, no but, but, but it doesn't it, I mean. it reduces
1: irrational dread
0: yeah it it, it, it reduces irrational dread and the the other benefit that you point out, which is a sign, which is a technological one, is, is the more we understand the world, the less bewildering it is, but more amazing it becomes, which is one aspect. And the second part is the more we're able to change it, which is the other impact of science. Those are really the two huge yeah, benefits yeah. of science, I guess. And although somewhere I was looking in where it is, I, I don't know if I skipped it or if it's later on, you, you do point out that someone said there's, there's, there's there's applied science and there's science that's going to become applied or something like that and i'm not sure I, i i don't buy that dichotomy i mean i i i don't i don't apologize for nor do do i think it's i think it's what i fully expect that virtually everything i've ever worked on will never have an application and that's okay. I mean, I don't think dark understanding dark matter and galaxies is likely ever to have an application. And Joe, you know, of course, you know the technologies we use to develop e- experiments to look for it is a different thing. But the concept—we're not going to make dark matter bombs. We're not going to make dark matter cars, and it, and it, and that's okay. And I think there's parts of science that will never be applied, and that's not and that's okay. Do you agree?
1: Oh yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I quote this was uh, George Porter, who was a chemist saying this, yeah. and. Uh... I think I think he wouldn't disagree with what you're saying. He would just say that, um, as we know very well, um, it's a long time before there's an application. I mean, um, I give the example of a of the laser, yeah, uh, which uh, was developed in the 60s using Einstein's ideas from the from the 1920s, and many applications of the laser weren't envisaged by the people who, did, who invented this. They came a almost later, so so I just I just meant something like that that uh, um, you you can never be sure of how science is going to be applied. Absolutely,
0: and and moreover, moreover, networks. choosing to, as you talk about later in the book, and we'll get to choose and something I strongly agree with, and I've been advocating for a long time, is that choosing how to fund science by looking at its applications is often mis yes. uh, uh, misdirected as well. And you use one or two examples. Uh, the example I always use is computers. If you if you would put a lot of money into building a fast computer before the transistor, you'd have computers with flywheels and other things. The transistor was invented and, and not to make better computers necessarily, but, yeah, yeah. but change the world. And so, yeah, you never know. That's why it's important to fund curiosity driven research. We'll get there. One of the things you say, say, which is a beautiful sentence, and I don't know if it's yours, but I don't really care. Science is organized skepticism. I don't know if you got that from someone, but it's it's a wonderful description uh, of of the scientific process because of the way science it works as a dialectic. It, it works as a uh, you say because the greatest esteem goes to those who contribute to something unexpected and original, especially those who could overturn a consensus. And therefore, um, you know, therefore we need to be skeptical of not just existing ideas but ideas that are proposed. Um, Mm -hmm. But I wonder if you've talked, do you, have you read anything by Jonathan Rauch? Um, uh, He's, I I had a podcast with him. He's a journalist and a writer. Um, He's written several books about science um, that have enlightened me about science. And what he makes a point of is that science is inherently a social activity. It's not, he's Mm. not one of these new age, you know, one of these deconstructors that science is socially Derived, I mean the electron masses with the electron mass, but he mm-hmm. argues that it cannot be done without this uh, uh, without a, a, a community, because right. it's required that all ideas are immediately open to attack, if you want to call it, or 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 uh, skepticism and discussion, and that's the only way science can progress as a commu- as a social activity.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you, I would you buy? Yes,
1: yes. Um, I, I mean, so sometimes you want to think in a solitary way for quite a long time, but uh, the validation comes from interaction with your peers.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you exactly, we all we want to, th- there is time for thinking, and it's an important thing to do, but but without, but it would, it could not proceed by a group of people thinking and not. And and that and we've seen the dangers of people thinking on their own with what well, you yes. talked about, it. even the great sides like Hoyle and others being become obsessed with an idea yes. and not not. And, and, and the community moves on because the community sort of it's So it's not it, so it's science as the enterprise moves on only because of the community of people who are constantly questioning and testing and speaking out about other people's view, ideas. It, it, Anyway, it's a, I, I, I He. He's an interesting. Um. It's interesting to read. I'll, when I. When I. When I. After this is over, I'll send you the book. The, no, the, name, the name of the book because, um, I, I thought you know I. I'm. I was surprised that I learned something about, um, um, uh, uh um, you know the nature of science by, by a non scientist and he's he's definitely a non-scientist. But it's very mm-hmm. interesting. Um, you talk about the goals of science being modest. And I think that's another important thing that very you say, if you ask scientists themselves what they're working on, you'll seldom get an inspirational reply like seeking to cure cancer or understanding the universe. Rather, they will focus on a tiny piece of the puzzle and tackle something that seems tractable. And I think that's a really important aspect of science that people don't realize that they think it's always aimed and all scientists are doing grand things when when it works by baby, baby steps. And, again, I think that's probably, once again, the, one of the hardest things. I don't know if you found it in your graduate students. I found it myself as a graduate student. I have found it in training graduate students. is to say, you know, you're biting off more than you can chew. Just try and pick a problem you can actually solve. Yes, yes,
1: yes. Um, but, but, of course, uh, you've got to find a problem which uh, is going to be relevant to a big picture.
0: Yeah that's
1: right uh, lots of small problems are, are not worth doing yes yeah. they, they don't have any impact but the uh, judgment comes in uh, when you decide uh, to pick a bite-sized problem which you can make progress and don't bang your head against the wall because it's too hard uh, but a problem which is going to be part of the big picture and i also say in my book that uh, one of the reasons it's important to uh, interact with the the wider public is that otherwise we get uh, blinkered and uh, uh, we forget that what we're doing is only worthwhile in the long run if it does help to illuminate a big picture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 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 it's it, it's a, and it's important to get that feedback and to understand at the same time that what you and I do is a luck, both a luxury and, and it's it's supported by the public and 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 it, it, and therefore we shouldn't be surprised it's our own fault if they're not interested in what in some sense it's their own fault if it's or at least it's their right and but also their own fault if we think something's important but the public doesn't mm-hmm. it's probably our fault for not for not communicating why as very effectively mm-hmm. nor mm-hmm. nor should we expect to be funded just because we think it's interesting or we like it right mm-hmm.
1: yeah yes. and well, um, uh, it is, uh, the uh the, the familiar story of um uh Penguins and wilson uh when uh, wilson uh you know, he was so focused on clearing out the pigeon shit from the equipment and mm-hmm. all that all that stuff that uh, um he didn't realize how important his discovery was until he read walter sullivan in the new york times
0: yeah that's right exactly you talk about that in your book absolutely going to yeah. the
1: afterglow of creation
0: yeah 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 absolutely and so that's why I, I, I found told the same thing. I, I, well, you've written, I've written a lot of books, and so have you. And I found when writing books, about especially about subjects that I think I understand very well, you know, sometimes I track, try and tackle a broader area so I can learn it. Well, that's why I write books often. But, but, um, in making in trying to communicate it, I suddenly have a totally different perspective of, of both its important importance and what the key ideas are. In the effort of popularization, I learn a lot. You too. Yes. Yes. Hmm. I know you say that you personally um, would be very um, feel very um, unfulfilled if you didn't have the opportunity to explain what you were working on to a wider public. I I don't think that's that's. I feel the same way. I don't think it's required, though. I mean, the, the, no, no, no. there's there are plenty of scientists who are quite happy not you know. And, and I,
1: are colleagues, as you say, but uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, they're not. And, and one of the things that worried me and when we talk about public funding, which is an aside I hadn't thought about before but uh, mentioning here, but certainly something that used to worry me was when, the, when the various funding agencies would require young scientists who were um, applying for these very prestigious uh, fellowships or, or, or grants like the Outstanding Junior Investigator Grant. And I was a chairman of the department and these kids would come up to me and I'd say kids because they were young um uh and they had what what was required was they had to have a public outreach component of their of their research most of them had never had either been postdocs working actively or graduate students never even taught much less had about and they had to invent some public outreach based on no experience and often no interest and and i thought how sad that was because most of them never, even when they got those awards, most of the public outreach never went anywhere. But I think the point is that we should encourage those scientists who have an interest to do it, but not require all scientists to do it. No,
1: absolutely. And some, some don't like it and no good at it. But uh, but I think on the other hand, I think those scientists in academia who do this sort of thing um, ought to get some credit. I mean, it's, oh yeah, it shouldn't be that the only thing that counts for promotion is publication in referee journals. Um, writing good blogs and uh, um, interacting with the public in other ways uh, is is very important in keeping the scientific community healthy. It's certainly and is also- public service,
0: and and often service to the community is one of the things that leads to tenure. And that I agree with you. I'm obviously a son, who one person who spent a lot of 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 time doing it and, more, and you know, but just not everyone. And as I often like to say, not only do I, I think all scientists should communicate with the public. There's some of my colleagues who I definitely don't want to interact with the public. <laughs> and, but, but, you, but, the, but the ultimate point is that when it comes to the importance of communicating with the public and also the importance of sort of pure versus applied science, you say this is why much of science is best funded as a public good. Ultimately, yes. we, we, we think the process of science is a public good and therefore should be funded. And that's independent of necessarily the technical applications, the consequences, but the whole process of trying to ask questions about the world is a good thing.
1: Yes, yes, because uh, you can't you can't predict what will be applied and when. Um, And um, if you look back at the um, uh, antecedents of some important discovery or some important invention, uh, then of course um, it's lots of different people who've contributed different ways. So it's very hard to isolate the credit. Um, but I think all we can say is that overall, in a broad broad sense, uh, the amount spent on pure research has more than justified itself.
0: Yeah, no, and f- I remember at the time, it was during, I guess, the Bush administration when I was arguing um, that um, uh, and I w- there was a group that uh, produced a very important report on pointing out that, um, that you could argue that half of the U.S. gross domestic product was due to curio- funding curiosity-driven research uh, twenty-five to fifty years beforehand, rather than <laughs> rather than applied research. And and there is a great motivation to focus in in funding agencies on purely applied. But you just don't know. And if you stop the curiosity-driven research, you you're you're ultimately har- hiring even if you're interested primarily in economic benefits. Yes, but yes.
2: Um,
1: well, you do uh,
0: have to consider.
1: Trying to optimize economic benefits. And uh, and certainly in, in my country, there's a problem uh, getting the first uh, stage to commercialization. You know, you to mm-hmm. get it to, uh, to a prototype, uh, you need some venture capital, and that's hard to come by. So one well, needs to ease that path. But that's not a reason for downgrading the importance of funding the basic science. And of course, the other point I would make is that um, insofar as the basic science is done in universities, um, then uh, it's done by the same people who are going to have another important output, namely bright and well-trained students.
0: Yeah, And all absolutely. these things
1: are together.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, training the students is maybe, it's uh, understanding the fact that the students we're training both as undergraduates and graduate students. We're not trying to create clones of ourselves. That, mm-hmm. that it is right and fair that most of our students don't become academics. Uh, it would almost be a shame if they did, because because the training we give them will then go out and they'll maybe, you know, they'll create Google or something like that, uh, which will, you know, whether for better or worse, will change the economic perspective of the world. Or uh, And so uh, we I, I remember in in thinking about how teaching how to teach physics, one of the problems of the way we taught it, it was a revelation for me when a colleague of mine, a former colleague at Harvard pointed out to me that we shouldn't. When we're teaching students, we shouldn't—they don't need to have all the set of skills that a, 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 a functioning physicist does—and therefore, it's okay to recognize that we're not trying to create clones of ourselves and, and to change the way we teach a little bit, so that they may not have all the technical expertise to calculate everything about a, a brick sliding down a inclined plane, but maybe they don't need to. No, no, no. but but I, I think we we do need
1: to. Uh, to uh, ensure that academia attracts enough people to keep it going into state, because uh, um, uh, one point which I mentioned in my book is that um, I think academic careers, uh, certainly in your country and mine, are becoming less attractive than they were.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and 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 trying to make sure that, and there are a bunch of reasons, and one that you don't talk about. I do want to get to this area, which which you don't talk much about, because I think maybe you don't have an experience as so much. Is one of the reasons there are a number of reasons why I think academia is becoming less attractive to people, and I am concerned about, um, as you know, because I've written about this. Um, you know, you talk about the pressures and, and difficulty of academia, and and you know, pu- not just publishing, but you know. Um, uh uh uh, you, you uh order the culture generally yeah, yeah yeah but um but one of but but one of the things that caused the problem I'll just bring it up and cause i wanna focus on again later when you w with me relevant is you you say one of the um uh what's crucial in sifting error and validating scientific claims is open discussion mm-hmm. and I I, I do think and I'll make this statement now you can comment on if you want, but I I want to discuss it more with you that one of the things that is making an academic career less attractive to a lot of people is the fact that open discussion is becoming more difficult in academic institutions and Mm -hmm. people are afraid of that. And that's making the environment less pleasant for a lot of people. And I don't know if you've experienced it in the wonderful Mm -hmm. places you work, but but um, but it's happening around the world. uh, the, the, the imperative to foster, you say the imperative to foster openness and debate is a common thread through all the examples I've discussed, um, and, and that imperative to foster openness and debate, how do you view, you talk about the importance of, of communicating to the public through social media, but how do you think, what do you think about mo- social media and its fostering of openness and debate? Well, I mean, I, I think
1: it's uh, got very severe downsides, um, but more, more broadly in politics, because I think um, uh, it's not just Trump. Uh, it's the advent of social media. Yeah. Uh, follows out the moderate center. Um, and, uh, uh Gives voice to the extremes. Um, in contrast to when we had our news mainly through regular newspapers, etc. When responsible journalists would sort of muffle the crazy extremes. Yeah, the news aren't muffled, and you click on them against something still more extreme. And and this, I think, is a a structural problem which is going to affect democracy in general. Um, and um, uh, it happens obviously. Um, within, uh, within, within um more specialized social groups, including academia as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, talked. although I think
1: in, in academia, you know, we, we know there are cranks of all kinds and uh, we, we just learn to discount them.
0: Well, it'd be great. Yeah, it would be great. But I don't think we're, yeah. Well, I think, unfortunately, the cranks are being, sometimes the cranks are really fascinating and interesting people that that push the yeah. field forward. And we, we deal with that when, we, when they're making a valuable contribution. And unfortunately, I think we're finding that the interesting cranks, I mean, I, I'm virtually certain that Newton would not be allowed to have an academic position today um, if he were if he were living in the modern world, and it would be a loss for humanity in that case.
1: Well, I mean, I think
0: um, uh, one
1: point I make is that um, uh, because um, academia is getting less attractive, and much slower promotion for mm-hmm. these demographic reasons. Uh, there's no longer an expansion of higher education in the way there was when we were young, um, and people don't retire, so they. Occupy positions for even longer. And so, uh, this therefore means uh, this, it takes longer to establish yourself. And uh, I quote the NIH, where the average age where you get your first grant there's now reason just like 43.
0: Yes, yeah, um, amazing.
1: Whereas, uh, 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 and we, we want to have in academia not just the people who can't do anything, anything else, but people of versatile talents and ambition who want to feel they've done something distinctive and original in their 30s. And if that doesn't remain possible in academia, mm-hmm. then we lose many of the people we want to keep, because we want a lot of them to go in ha- and uh, start uh, companies, et cetera, yeah. but we want some to stay in academia.
0: Yeah, and did you point out, again, to jump ahead, that true not just for academics. You want people who have done two years of university, but then find that they can't go on not to feel like failures, but to say, "I, I you know, I... I took two good years of I got two good years of education and we should celebrate that and I think it's yeah there's a, I mean the, the the situation in academia is becoming more and more difficult for a lot of reasons but but before we get there I really want to talk about you you do point you say something that that I think is really relevant I want to talk about this relationship between science and government that you that you've spent a lot of time on and that you focus on in the book it in part of the book this is a wonderful sentence. It said, there's no reason to expect scientific issues to be straightforward, even if they refer to something every day and familiar. And I think um, I I learned, I, I guess this first became clearer to me uh, w- with my wife, who my, my, my wife worked for the government of Australia as sort of science management for the government. And what she made me realize, and I thought I understood this already, but quite clearly is that what scientists, scientists don't understand what's important often don't understand what's important what the questions that are important to politicians and politicians don't understand the questions that are important to scientists and mm-hmm. that if we worked harder so that the one each group could understand. Uh, what the what the other what the others priorities were involved in and why they were, it would be really a, a great assistance to the way science can do what you want to do, which is help us save the world. And and that, go on, you were going to say that. But of course, uh, one point
1: I make is that um, a bigger fraction of the kind of decisions which politicians have to take do have a scientific element to them.
0: Yeah, more Um, and more. In fact, science is becoming, yeah. Health, environment, uh, energy. It's hard to imagine actually almost any, I've argued it's hard to imagine any significant... Uh, so, uh, political uh, question, especially at national level, that doesn't that doesn't have a scientific component at this no, point, exactly. mm-hmm. and the and the and the and the stakes are getting larger in in many ways, and so the need wow. for that sound pu- making po- public policy based in the first sense on empirical evidence, on the one hand, and the need for scientists to be able to communicate to politicians recognizing the limitations. Of their own knowledge and abilities is is is, that combination is more urgent than ever Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: and and i think you give an example even when scientific facts are agreed upon the planned response depends on balancing the ethics economics and politics that's what scientists understand they say scientists look and the example you give is a good one consensus isn't easy to reach among experts for example shutting schools down may reduce the spread of infection so scientists would say we want to solve the pandemic shut schools down it's obvious Mm -hmm. But of course, as you as you then say, but might not this benefit be outweighed by the harm done by disrupting children's education, which is, of course, a big issue on, on the right right now in the US, uh, and, and especially those disadvantaged children whose parents couldn't offer effective homeschooling. And, but that's an issue. So often the scientist was well, obvious what the right thing to do is. Or look, take climate change. It's obvious we need to do this. But then the politician will say, well, well first of all, I have a public I have to deal with that may not accept not eating as much meat or whatever you want to pick and I have uh, economic questions uh, and so while the, the scientific while the scientific risk is clear that the, the the way to mediate it is not so clear because there are there those ethical as ethics economics and politics are not illusory they're real scientists may think of they're illusory but they're real in the real world no I mean uh, I think most scientists
1: unless they're really uh, very blinkered, they're aware of the, of the issues. Uh, they're aware that there's ethics and economics. Yeah. The, point, the point is that um, they only deserve special attention.
0: Yeah.
1: The scientific part of the decision. Uh, um, obviously, they're citizens, and, and they, they should care about all the other, other aspects in the same way. But in those respects, they are uh, just citizens, and uh, they can offer advice, but um, uh, not with... The expectation of any special weight—that's
0: right. Well, they should offer advice. Uh, they scientific expertise, right? But not po- not policy advice uh, with without understanding. And I think the problem is that scientists tend to dismiss. Say, "Oh, your your concerns the politician are irrelevant." And of course, then they lose. If your interest yeah. is communication, then you. never
1: to I hope they're not all like that.
0: Well, and but th- but at the same time, unfortunately, th- it goes the other way. There are politicians who are saying, "You scientists are pie in the sky people that don't understand how the real world yeah. works," and and that those two things need to are the biggest obstacles to having science do what you and I would like it to do. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another aspect that you talk about, which is interesting, which is science advisors, and you mm-hmm. do point out a difference between uh, Britain and I know Australia. Um, I'm not sure of Canada actually. You, you the science the science advisors are public servants are civil servants in some sense and they're not they're not political appointees mm. in in the uk and i and in i i know in australia um whereas the united states always has well not always but in the last 60 years has had wow. with a few exceptions has had presidents choose uh, science advisors, and who in the most recent case had a cabinet appointment and therefore were political adv- advisors, and in this case were subject to the vicissitudes of politics, like mm. Eric Lander. Um, and um, you argue that it's probably better to have a system where science scientists who are giving advice are not political appointees.
1: Um, yes. Well, of course, it's not quite a clear cut distinction because certainly uh, uh, in Britain, uh, each minister has his political advisers, etc. Yeah, yeah, and there are some permanent people in the uh, working in the government, in NSF, and places like that. Uh, so, uh, but, but there is a, a tendency for more of a revolving door in the US than in the UK, and um, uh, this this means that you don't have such a high chance of getting long-term continuity. Um, but on the other hand, uh, as I Discuss in the context of defence, um, uh, your system means that there are some people with real expertise who are outside the system. Uh, in the UK, um, uh, working for the Ministry of Defence is a rather closed world, and that therefore means that there aren't uh, people outside that system who criticise it with a level of expertise that is needed. Yeah. So
0: it seems to me the best. I was as I'm thinking about what you said. The best compromise is to have um, scientists' appointment appointed to advise the government, but with fixed terms, so that yes. so that you you know you have a five year term and you have it no matter what. I mean, unless you know, barring major problems. But and 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 then there are new people because you want constantly. You, you don't. You you want to have new scientists involved, and that. But you're not subject to the the election cycle or whatever, and, um, and, and, and you can give advice and then, and then move on and, and then move back in academia, as you say, and, or elsewhere, and then have that expertise based on that five-year term or 10-year term, which is then valued by, by the academic environment as well.
1: Well, Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the UK system, there are some people who are uh, civil servants for their lifetime, whereas the senior ones, there's a chief scientific advisor in every department of of Mm. the government. Uh, who is seconded from the university? Okay, and so they are. They do have
0: a term appointment, basically, and the university guarantees them a job when they come back, and they and and that sort of thing. That that seems to me. I agree. The, I mean, that's what happens. in presidential science advisor, in principle, um, uh, I've had several departments I've been in where the persons become the presidential science advisor. Usually, you're not allowed to leave. They used to not allowed to take a leave more than two years. The university, But they tend to they tend to say if you're advising the president, you're allowed more longer term. And, and, and and you get and you can get, you know, excellent people. Um, and when they are excellent and not political, like Ernie Moniz and Steve Chu, um, uh, they have a significant role and it's kind of, but I, I guess I just want to ask this question. Eric Lander, you point out, is a brilliant scientist and brought great expertise and utility um, do you think the fact that he some people think he was a bully should have been a reason to remove him? I don't uh, myself. I... Well, uh, uh, um,
1: I, I just I just don't know. I mean, if it, yeah. uh, if it was very bad, it, yes.
0: If it wasn't too bad, no. So I I, I just don't okay. know the facts. Well, he'd been fairly successful in working with people most of his career, and so and producing results, and and so um, mm. I understood he I understand. I guess he didn't suffer fools badly but that's not a reason it's in academia you're allowed to do that more effectively than in government in, in politics i think and
1: well, um, but there is a difference because the junior people can't answer back in government whereas uh in academia it's more sort of
0: democratic not well so, uh, one would hope. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, um okay now let me i i just you spend time. I know that personally. You and I have talked about Joseph Rotblat. You're the first person, actually, who I think I really learned about Joseph Rotblat from years ago. So you mm. admire him. He's one of your idols, I think, it's scientific idols. Is that a true statement? Or um, well, I think
1: um, I do admire his lifelong commitments, mm-hmm. and he was lucky to live to be 95 and still to be an inspiring speaker, even to a group of students in his 90s. So he had a long-term influence, um, but I think um, uh, the reason I got involved to some extent with Pugwash in the 1980s was that uh, I admired uh, him and also I, I got to know Rudy Piles, for instance, who yeah. yeah. the, the idea for the bomb, um, and in the US, uh, people like John Simpson and Hans Bethe, who yeah. I got to know academically. And uh, I just felt that um, when that great generation were no longer around, it would be a pity if there weren't committed people who uh, couldn't match their expertise or or yeah. credibility, but who were uh, trying to campaign along the lines that they would have appreciated. And so, um, uh, I mean, Rothblatt was the a, a prime example of this, really given his entire life history. But um, um, in a, I would say similar things about uh, Piles and uh, Hans Bethe. Yeah,
0: and, and maybe may, and Dick Garwin uh, or no or or Dick Garwin, yeah.
1: but Dick Garwin is slightly. He was too young. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, um, Dick Garwin. I think his career is wonderful. He's still going strong in his nineties. But um, he was he was too young to actually be in World War II. I think. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Now, but well, so the one thing that you pointed out about particularly unique and and something you admired about Roublat, which I think is worth mentioning, is that he was the only person to leave the Manhattan Project once he felt that there was the moral the moral imperative was the concern that adolf hitler would develop a a a nuclear weapon uh, mm-hmm. and then when it was clear that that wasn't the case he left because and he left he heard that someone when and apparently he heard he left when he heard that i think general groves probably say well we can use it against russia and and um and he was the only one that everyone else as as Feynman often talks about the technical the seduction of the advanced became so Free technology, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it became that, that's quite, oh, we're all, we can do it. We can do it. That overrode the the moral issue, the ethical yeah. issue. No,
1: I think that's true. I mean, it, it was obviously more complicated in regards to motivation because yeah. um, his wife, who um, he'd never seen since he left Poland at the outbreak of war, went to England and uh, he was desperate to find out was she still alive, et cetera. So he had other reasons for perhaps uh, trying to get back to Europe. but. Uh, uh, there's no doubt that he was only doing this uh, uh, nuclear research at all because he wanted to beat the nazis
0: okay but now i want to say uh, once again how the best intentions can go awry i think you suggest that he was the one that suggested that scientists should take a kind of hippocratic oath not to do not to cause harm <laughs> i i i think that has the greatest potential for disaster of anything and I, the example I'm going to give you, and I want to see what you, you, you think about, is, it, is it, it ultimately stifles research. And the example I know of now that I just wrote about was, I think, one of the nature journals that said that they will not mu- pu- publish material that might pu- pu- possibly not physically harm, but emotionally harm um, uh, um, marginalized groups. So they wouldn't nature behavior i think was the journal that said that basically if 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 some group could be take the results of that research and find it offensive or 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 hurt them that they would not publish that the results and so seems to me if you take a, a, a if we start requiring to do no harm the question is what who decides what the harm is and that's my yes. real concern and so yes. i want to ask well, you first, to comment on that
1: first of all i mean um uh, i i i don't think That issue you've raised would come under a Hippocratic oath at all, really. Uh, But I I share your scepticism because uh, the main point is one can't predict um, what the implications of one's work are going to be. And therefore, uh, unless you're really sure it'll have no benefits, uh, then it's best to, uh, to Proceed cautiously. So uh, I'm not sure much will be added by uh,
0: well Well, that, well, that's that's it's true. That we don't know what the benefits are. We've already discussed that, uh, you know, and that's that's a great part of it. But it, it seems to me if we start saying scientists do no harm, then yes. we got we automatically give someone else the right to decide what harm is, and that is is is, is as equally I would argue su- subjective in some ways as the ethical, political and economic issues you talked about earlier. And I've seen now we see people saying when it comes to physics, that it's harm, it's harmful to have whiteboards. You know, I mean, there's an article that just came out of physical review. I mean, because it it that it, that that's racist and 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 uh, it's obviously ridiculous. But when we start, you know, immediately, once you, once you start giving these requirements or or nat- I think it was nature. You, you cannot. The, the uh, was no was Royal Society of Chemistry gave a, 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 a admonition to its editors not to not to allow any um, anything that could be offensive to anyone on the basis of almost anything. They gave a list of twenty five different requirements, and there's if, you, if there's almost nothing you can say at some level that doesn't offend someone. And if a minute you use that as a constraint, then you get it seems to me you stifle that whole thing that we talked about earlier, which is that science thrives and actually only succeeds with free and open debate. Yes, well, I mean, first of all,
1: I, I don't think those who supported Joe and Hippocratic Oath would have uh, disagreed with you particularly on this, because uh, they were thinking of substantial harm, like bioweapons and, yeah, things sure. and um but that. Uh, but on, on the issue you're raising, which is a problem, this is really the... Um, uh, the, the view that people don't have a right to be a, uh uh people have a right not to be offended
0: yeah yeah and people uh, have no such
1: right you agree yes that's that, that is pernicious per um and uh, in fact in my university um there, there was a um, a proposed document that said that one should respect alternative views and uh uh there was an amendment proposed to replace the word respect by tolerates.
0: <laughs> okay, so yes.
1: One by, by 90% to 10%. Yeah,
0: I think the point is, and I've said this many because times, right one point. can respect individuals, but one doesn't have to respect ideas. <laughs> that's the
1: point. And I think Listen, that's I a think fundamental that
0: difference.
1: It's the right thing, that you should, uh, uh, you, and you should tolerate other opinions, but you yeah. don't need to opinion
0: and it's all it's i oh, yeah in fact ridiculing them is sometimes the best thing you can do sometimes i know you never do but sometimes they sometimes it's worth ridiculing um and 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 you know I, and having said that about the Hippocratic health you reminded me that when i taught at yale i did i was involved at a time getting my faculty colleagues to agree not to write a sign a statement saying they wouldn't work on star wars research for example um the reagan star wars thing that they would not take federal money to work on that program which which was a clearly harmful thing. So I guess in certain instances, I think it's okay to make to to make those yeah. kind of, oh, take those kind of oaths. Yeah, um, uh, that's uh, you
2: reasonable.
0: You praised Jason, this group that was founded uh, of scientists that advised the, the Pentagon on, and I know uh, we both know a number of colleagues who we admire tremendously, including Freeman Dyson and even Steve Weinberg and others, so he, Steve left after a while. Um, but the one thing that uh, I, you, you've, I, I'm not sure it's as universally good as you suggest. Namely, it seemed to me that the difference was that they, that the people who chose the questions they were going to work on was they were often directed by the military. And therefore, the key ethical questions never got asked. I think, for example, during the Vietnam War, they, they investigated whether there should be an electronic fence across Vietnam. That's a technical issue. But clearly, the ethical question was begged. And therefore, it is worrisome when there are groups that do advise military but the questions are provided by the military rather than by the scientists themselves so that's why i've always had problems with jason so i wanted to get your sense of that well i mean i, I, I share your concerns i mean i think the reason i mentioned jason was it, it
1: has um, um it, it has the characteristics that it involves um, top-rate scientists yeah. in more than top just rate. In, in more than just sitting around a table for a day and minutes being taken but in getting together uh, and uh, uh, coming up with new, with new ideas, tossing ideas off each other. And that's because they, uh, um, they know and respect each other and they choose their own membership, et cetera, and they know they're listened to. Uh, uh, and I think that those are prerequisites for working. And uh, uh, I've several times talked to people over here about whether we could replicate that that uh, sociology, as it were, in in the UK, and I certainly think we never could, in the defence area. Um, part of which people are, are slightly uh, um, um, less robust in their in their views, but 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 more important, uh, uh, we in the UK can't make any very important independent decisions. So we, they wouldn't think they work on important problems. But on the other hand, I think it is worth um, trying to replicate the sociology. In something like um, uh, an integrated transport system for cities, or something something of that kind, you know, where um, the social benefits and it has um, a lot of technology involved and cross-disciplinarity. So uh, I do think it could be worthwhile in the uh, in the UK um, trying this system. I mean, yeah. there are lots lot of uh, commissions of all kinds. Yeah, but, about-
0: but, but where people subsequently <laughs> spend time working,
1: people together for uh, six weeks. Uh, to think through a problem and try to be original, um, that's something which hasn't been tried. And I just thought it would be worth trying, but it would not be worth trying in the defense area.
0: Yeah, uh, but the problem, I agree, it's a its a wonderful opportunity for, for fruitful discovery and interaction. The, uh, but I guess I'd say the reason it only works in the defense area in At least the reason Jason functioned is that General Dynamics or uh, the con- military contractors who paid for it make so much money that they could afford to make it financially and intellectually attractive to those people working on Jason. I suspect in other areas, unless you found a government that was willing or a private company that was willing to fund that kind of activity, it'd be hard to make it happen. Well, it's I easier think... defense because there's a lot of money involved.
1: Yeah, yeah. But so I'm, I'm saying that if it is in England, we should get the. Ministry of Transport or something to do yeah. it. Well, but or maybe a private company. Maybe maybe Tesla. I I'm this. Um, Steve Coonin mm-hmm. was who was I think deputy head of the Jason Group, and mm-hmm. then he went to work as chief scientist for BP.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: he did. In that latter capacity, he did organise a sort of mini Jason type activity on energy, which yeah. took place in Santa Barbara, I think so. Uh, he made a. I don't know how successful it was, but he he tried to do something in a... In that sort of spirit,
0: yeah, no, and Aspen, and the, the Aspen Center for Physics, once Steve and other people, and Steve yeah. Chu, yeah, ran up. I was there for that, and yeah, no, that that's good. And the question, of course, and this is the leads naturally to the next question. You point out that in the U.S., because of the of this sort of revolving door um, in defense, we have a lot of experts, people who know what they're talking about, who aren't are, who aren't required by secrecy arguments to to not talk about it. And that's a good thing but the but let me ask a devil's advocate kind of question again because both you and i were involved in the Bolton atomic scientists what got me all my the people many of the people i admired when i was in graduate school were deeply involved in the Bolton atomic scientists and that's why one of the reasons i got involved the, the notion that scientists would speak out and, and try and inform the public about the dangers of something that was very dangerous mm-hmm. seemed to me incredibly important and as i say in my case the people I admired were involved and then i I was immensely honored to become not only on the Board of Sponsors, but the chair of the Board of Sponsors, Who and I was very active for a decade in that, But uh, and and it reminded me of how I would have felt, how, how happy I was to be in a position that I, I guess I would have admired a lot when I was younger. But then to put, to be fairer, I'd have to ask as a devil's advocate, did it really ever have any impact? And I'm not sure, you know, uh, you, you know, you gave one example, uh, I think, from your own experience of, 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 um, in a defense case when, when you were on the, I think, in the House of Lords or, or in a, in a, in a, in a where you, you, you know, made a suggestion, but eventually the government never took up on it. And I'm not sure the, I mean, the, I think the Bolton is a good thing. I always think information is a good thing, but I don't really know if it ever has an impact. I'm not sure. You argue that Rotblatt's pugwash conferences did allow a back channel of discussion but it's great to have it but i i'm not i don't i'm sad to say i'm not sure any of this has had as much of an impact as we'd like
1: well i mean i think two things firstly um uh, uh, in the cold war when there was uh, very little other contact between mm. east and west uh yeah. then there was a back channel via the pugwash conferences yeah. it was and similarly, um, the uh, National Academy and the Russian Academy, the National Academy being chaired, committee being chaired by Panofsky. Uh-huh.
2: Um,
1: and people like, people like that, uh, they, um, and Darwin was involved, uh, they had an effect. But of course, when things opened up, then there are far more uh, activities like that. And uh, it's harder for any single one uh, to have an effect. When there are, yeah. b- are official channels, and um, I think one thing I mentioned I was involved in was a uh, something run by a think tank on whether the UK should keep the Trident missile system. Yes, that's it. And, um, this, um, well, well, this was only a, a UK venture, and yeah. it was simply on, on the policy question, um, and it wrote a report which um, um, it, it, it it had it had no effects. But on the other hand, uh, it's a sort of thing that's that might have had an effect if this was an open issue. In fact, there was a decision that had been made a few years ago and they weren't going to overturn it without a very strong reason. Um, And uh, and so it it didn't have very much effect. Um, But uh, I think the main point is that now there are far more ways in which this debate takes place in in the media, et cetera, and um, uh, op-eds in the major newspapers Mm -hmm. have an effect. um, and, uh, And... what individual politicians say have an effect. So that's why um, uh, no single small group can have as much effect as it did as during the Cold War, when there was only one such group,
2: Yeah.
1: and it was the only way you could actually exchange information. So I think uh, Podewils did have a, uh, an effect in the 1960s, but uh, uh,
0: much less since then. So much less since then. Now I guess to me it seemed. Let me. Well, you had this experience, and I'm going to make a, when I look at everything from the National Academies to Bulletin, it seems to me, and the example you gave is, just reinforces my, maybe prejudice, but I think it's based on observation, that the, what happens is when these when groups of scientists advise the government in these regards, if the advice agrees with what the government thinks is politically expedient, they take it and they completely ignore it otherwise. And, 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 and so all it does is, you know, all of these studies and reports end up not changing policy. They just, if they happen to support, if they happen to agree with the policy the government was intending to do, they're in- enacted. It looks like they have an impact, but if, 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 if they're politically inexpedient, they're just ignored. And I tend to think that's the way it works, but please show me, tell me I'm wrong
1: well two, two, two things first um in defense the sort of issues uh like whether the uk should keep trident um that's not a scientific issue primarily it is a political issue so yeah, uh, yeah. You, you might expect a scientific committee uh to um have to say, and the fact that the committee on trident it, it wasn't a scientific committee it was a committee of yeah. uh, politicians etc yeah and the, you, were you were one were of the there.
0: few scientists
1: on it. So, um so uh, uh, but but, I think that there are different issues where international meetings of scientists are important and uh, uh, to take one example um uh, after the um the gain of funded experiments in microbiology that, then there was a genuine issue about whether government should fund that sort of experiments mm-hmm. and whether journals should publish the papers and there was a uh, a meeting convened by the uh, National Academy and some other foreign academies, including ours, uh, to where they got an international group of scientists and uh, and the editors of Nature and other yeah. journals to discuss policy on this question. And I think that's a case when um, the, the views of that group would have been taken seriously because it's a, it's a matter where science is important um, and the scientific community's views are important.
0: Well, you know, interesting. Because I think, look, anytime there's good international discussions, it's a good thing, but but I'm going to push back a little bit because I think you argued that, I mean, I would argue when it comes to gain-of-function issues, the the, key, the chief thing that caused at least movement in that regard was when journalists or other people wrote about that, not so much scientists discussing it, but, but when books were written and, and there were stories and the public got interested and concerned, and and that and I think that that moved things towards having such a meeting rather than the other way around. And no, so no was- I agree. it Did, but I think the, uh, the 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 views
1: expressed at a meeting, which was international and contained uh, most of the experts, those views would be given weight by a government.
0: Oh yeah, I think so. But I, I I I agree. But I think that's probably because, um, because the government doesn't have a dog in that fight. I mean. In the sense that the, you know, yeah, if if the if there was some overriding reason why the government thought a gain of function would work, then it wouldn't, then they wouldn't. I mean, it was useful for political or defense reasons or, or some other things. And my suspicion is that they go ahead anyway, but but maybe, yes, I
1: it, but precisely, and understand so my whole point is that uh, scientists only have. The right to be heard, specially on the scientific issues, yeah. and that may well be overridden by political concerns. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well. Okay. And and yeah. And well. And in general, they should, but they often are. I guess I was going to ask you. Let me let me ask you now. I mean, you've talked about the difference in the Royal Society, which you have an intimate knowledge of, um, because you're the president of it, and many years as a mem- as a fellow, um, and many committees before, during, and after. And the national academies when i think you're pro- i suspect you're probably a a foreign member of the national academy I'm, I'm, i I figured you were but um but the difference you know i guess again, with a jaded view i don't see the national academy as being particularly important or useful it primarily it's mo- most of its purpose is spent on choosing members and most of its energy is spent on choosing members and and while it convenes useful. Groups that do produce documents sometimes I've I've utilized that they again they're ignored if unless they're expedient and for the most part I suspect if the National Academy didn't exist you could create as you argue could you create groups the the question you ask in your book is could one create groups that weren't that weren't that, that would effectively do the same thing and you've argued that in your opinion the Royal Society. Does deserve to exist because it well, does it does have added value, but I'm I'm just wondering about the National Academy because I think the National Academy well, is increasingly well, well, ir- irrelevant. Two, two separate things. I mean, I think the uh, the Royal Society and
1: the National Academy are similar. The slight difference is that formally the National Academy uh, can be instructed to give advice to the government. It's less independent of the government than the Royal Society is, and that actually uh, was uh, quite a sharp issue. Uh, when there was a report on climate change produced in uh, uh, when we in about 2003, uh, when um, uh, Bruce Alberts wouldn't agree to what Bob May wanted uh, at the time, so that, that was when there was a difference, which meant that the NASA Academy had to be more cautious. Um, but again, there's not not very much difference, and um, uh, I, I, I agree. I don't think these academies have a, a huge influence, but uh, I think that. that in the example I quoted, like, uh, um, uh, are there some kind of biomedical exper- uh, experiments which are so dangerous they shouldn't be done at all or shouldn't be published? I think it's, it's very good to have a, a body which uh, is accepted to be representative of top scientists and which can express a view. Mm-hmm. And I think it has done uh, some good things in that, in that area. And even um, in... Uh, in climate change, and the first serious report on geoengineering um, was done by the U.S. Society in 2009, and uh, the guy came and gave evidence to a congressional committee over here, uh, over in the U.S. and etc. So uh, it does it does some things, but I agree with you. But the the other the other thing you quoted is that um, uh, there is too much emphasis on uh, getting people elected and all that, and, and the fact it's honorific. Um, uh, does does lead to this, and uh, and and I, d- I did say that um, uh, the minimum criterion for a an academy to be credible is that it's not possible to construct a better virtual academy uh, from non-members who are eligible. And yes, the,
0: exactly. It was brilliant, and I, and I guess my answer for the national academy is it's not clear to me. I I can't speak. I'm sure the Royal Academy Society is better, but uh, well, no,
1: it's it's, it's, it's again. It's again not not completely clear, and that's that's why I think um, uh, if one has these things, one should not uh, attach too much weight to honorific membership.
0: Yeah, so I mean, it's it the is, honorific it's, it's thing that turned people off, like Feynman, uh, another scientist I know, York, and who, who was a member but never agreed to go because, yeah. And, and then, what do you think? Uh, I wasn't going to ask, but what the heck, because I've written about it. What I've written about the National Academy recently, which has become more and more. Politically correct in the last uh, bunch of years, as they become more, like many in- scientific institutions, more susceptible or more, more alert to social media concerns and 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 possible negative publicity, and 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 the National Academies just last year were there was an article in Science about how there was 50% female because they specifically um, stopped giving people a point, the ability to make appointments if they were appointing males and um, more or less. I mean, and and and, what do you think of that? Um,
1: well, I mean, up to a point, I think it's sensible because clearly uh, women have had a tough time in the past. Yeah, in the past. A 60-year-old woman uh, will have had a difficult early career absolutely but what do you uh, think
0: but when it comes to making an appointments like basing it on that um don't you think that ultimately um demeans the credibility of a body that that's that uh, looking to make more diverse appointments is one thing but having a rule that there has to be that that uh, that that um ultimately uh committees will get appointments that will uh, the number of people they'll be able to appoint will be based on their past um behavior in appointing people that are acceptable to the to the to the directors of the academy yes yes um well i mean i,
1: I if it goes too far i agree it would be a mistake but on the other hand uh, what they're doing uh, i think is fair i mean i guess you've been ahead of the department in a university
2: yeah.
1: and um, i would have thought that in considering appointments uh, of the senior positions, uh, then uh, it's appropriate, in the case of a woman, um, to um, uh, allow for the likelihood that she will have had more time out, all that that sort of thing, Um, and um, uh, uh, not just take account of publications and oh yeah oh,
0: sure i mean looking at all the factors so I making, would say that, looking at the individual right. cases is, a, is an important thing when you're appointing someone and as chair of yes, yes. department moreover looking to try and make sure that you're not having that you are exploring the broadest possible pool of candidates but yes. but requiring the appointment process to ultimately match the demographics of the underlying society seems to me to be a danger well,
1: that would be the target, but they shouldn't. Yeah. But, but but I think that um, uh, it's, I mean, in academia, mm-hmm. in fact, uh, and I include academies in this, um, yeah. the shift towards gender balance has been much slower than in other walks of life. And the reason for that is that in academia, decisions are made on the basis of cumulative achievement and if that's the case, then someone who's uh, had a career gap has a yeah. lifelong handicap.
0: Oh, yeah, that's I agree not, with
1: that. That's not true in most other jobs. If, if you're appointing people in many other careers, you want to know what are they going to do in the next five years. You don't, you, you don't care in detail but about do you think that.
0: You, but do you th- really think that, I mean, in the modern, I'm not talking 30, 40 years ago, do you think in the modern world that has any impact? I mean, right now, Yes. You, you, right now, it's true that the dominant number of people getting, first of all, the the, the in in U.S. in the U.S. the the gender ratio is sixty percent women, forty percent men, in, in in universities as undergraduates, and in and in in terms of PhDs not- in all of science, by far more in in almost every field when you we, i mean in all of science there's some fields where there were men it's it's more more women and 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 the appointments are 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 and so I think you're absolutely right that that we're, that that there have been that there have been inequities in the past, but do you think that there there they they still exist well i think they still they exist at the
1: senior level um because mm-hmm. um uh, I said that there, uh, there were tremendous inequities um well, when we were students, I mean, yes. it didn't well, take graduate students until the late 1960s.
0: Yeah, um, so it's a little younger, so, but yeah.
1: Okay. So, so if if you're electing people to an academy, when they they tend to be at least middle aged.
0: Yeah, um, they, the uh, average age be, is deceased, I think. And, and some colleague of mine told me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so so, uh, so they will
1: have they will have had a handicap as their, their gender, um, and and of course, I think um, even. Uh, uh, even even when there is a, a full balance um mm. then i think one's going to have to allow for the fact that career breaks are going to be more for women than for men and that uh, and therefore it's never going to be fair to women if you simply uh, look at total citations or total um
0: total number well, of papers well yes although i think i think you're making the assumption that the career breaks at some point won't be more equitably distributed between males and females and Terms of, of never uh, happened, child yeah. ring. You don't think it'll ever yeah, happen yeah. that mental because no, right, I happen. No. I, I I'm talking yeah. about a case where I am. I've I fought to get of a guy who was who was who had been denied tenure, and it turned out that he had taken a year uh, to take care of his the, the family situation, and, and argued yeah, that yeah. in his case he, he should be considered like anyone else. And happily, they it yeah. was reconsidered. But yeah. that does yeah. happen. Yes. Yeah. Mm. I'm, I've worked on both sides, but in any case, the 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 bottom line is that it. You, the point is that uh, that it's not, getting back to the more important issue, this membership issue, which is such a vital concern to the National Academies that they're worrying about it, is not so important because they spend all the, that's one of the problems of the National Academies is is the honorific level, is that is they spend most of their time, and I remember when I was at Yale, most of the time of my colleagues who were in the National Academies was spent making sure their friends got in and their enemies didn't. Well, I have to say that um, I think the Royal Society does the elections better because
1: in in the Royal Society the um, decisions on uh, who to elect from the shortlist um, is made by a committee, um, which has all of whose members have read six reference letters about each of the candidates they're talking about. Whereas in the National Academy, all the members of the academy uh, in the particular field of study have a vote, and many of them. Uh, only know the universities people are at; they don't know their work. So, so I, I do think that there are some deficiencies in the in the way the uh, election process goes. But I think I'm disagreeing with you in that I I, uh, I think it's appropriate to make some special provisions for, for women.
0: Well, I I don't agree. I I don't disagree. I just always worry about requiring demographic quotas. Uh, I I think individual mm-hmm. cases need to be. Everyone should be examined individually and. And, yeah, yeah. and and reviewed on merit based on their own their own life experience, and I think that's the appropriate yeah. way to. And it's all right if,
1: if the experience includes not just published papers, but all yeah, the sure. other yeah.
0: yeah, 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 yeah. No, I I think we're in a complete agreement. I think if you, but if you do that and you look at each candidate rather mm-hmm. than ask for some identity from uh, that may be not relevant to their case, mm-hmm. then then and that's that's my problem of having of requiring general uh, of of requiring an abstract general set of guidelines when each case is an individual one and mm-hmm. i viewed that when i was hiring and i, could, yeah, I think i think the most ones. important thing and especially in any field but in academia where we have the luxury we need to look at each person individually and assess the, the, their strength in a in a, in, a, in a way that's honest and fair yes
1: but you're really assessing people who will perform well when they get the job and uh, the past record is only an indicator and i'm saying it's a biased indicator
0: oh yeah and sure true. and 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 yeah, yeah. and and you know, and in fact, actually we a colleague of ours um an astronomer Cormandy recently got in trouble because he he proposed he his argument was and i think fair a fair one that we are inevitably biased when we make appointments and mm-hmm. and I know that i that when as a chair of the department, I've wanted to hire people sometimes who we could not hire because they just weren't likable and they and they basically turned off they were great at what they did but they turned off the you know they would come visit they'd have a faculty visit and they turn off most of the people and and that's just, and it's a social endeavor and you can't expect that not to happen I mean it's a it's just the property of human interactions that some that some people who would be excellent scientists researchers and maybe even okay teachers um, turn off their colleagues and 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 that and that is going to impact on their 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 both their employment opportunities and their promotion opportunities.
1: Yes, but that's difficult, whether that's right or not. Uh,
0: what's difficult? What do you mean? Whether it's right that whether that should be a factor? Oh, it shouldn't be. I agree. I I I'm, see. I happen to like pentacris people, so for me it doesn't bother me so much. Mm-hmm. But but in uh, any case, okay. Let's. Uh, I want to. I want to. You've been very generous to your time and i want to i want to try and wrap this up a little bit but i do want to get to the last part of your of, of which is attracting talent both at the at the professional level and education which is something far broader trying to make sure we educate the public um we've talked about some of the things that get in the way um of attracting talent you've made the point that i remember in the united states You make the point of, uh, you said in my Cambridge College, I asked a group of final year engineering students what their career plans were. All but one were headed for finance or management consultancy, Mm -hmm. which was a problem. And I I remember my daughter was in high school that she, uh, 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 her brightest peers were all interested in in finance because there were huge amounts of money to be made in finance. And and, and they would have been exceptional. And and some of them were, you know, very talented technically. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And... uh, And, but, you know, but on the other hand, it's okay. I, one year when I taught at Yale, our entire class of theoretical physics PhDs in particle physics went to Wall Street. But that was okay because there weren't jobs in academia anyway. Um, But we need to, we need to think of ways to make it more attractive. To, and, and you've, and you've talked about some of the ways that young people need to be, need to be, um, need to be validated and, and, and encouraged. uh, early on in their careers to have a, a sense of value. Um, mm. Other things that you think are important to, to, uh, and also understanding that different aspects of their activities are valuable, and not just publishing papers. Yeah. yeah. Anything yeah. else?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think you mentioned salaries, and uh, and I think uh, there are these grotesque inequalities. And that's why I said early on that uh, um, we should learn more from Scandinavia and less from the United States and Britain, uh, because we now have these uh, uh, these huge inequalities um, between the finance sector salaries and those in academia, indeed salaries in the entire public sector, uh, which are on the whole far more socially useful uh, than uh, working for a hedge fund which is um socially useless or even damaging and crypto is certainly damaging Uh, so uh, the the, the, um the fact is that the distribution of wealth um is um uh, grotesquely unequal and that's having um uh, downsides not simply in terms of being um uh, unjust and unethical but it's not optimally deploying the talents of people because um uh, if people go into the professions or into government, on the whole they will do some some good if they if they're bright. Uh, whereas if they go into um, to crypto or hedge fund, it's not that they are getting um, ten or even a hundred times as much money. Uh, but it's not clear to me uh, to what extent they are benefiting the rest of us, and, and they are leading to a society uh, with distorted values and um, uh, production slanted towards produ- producing luxury goods. And it's rather interesting that uh, uh, luxury goods uh, shares have held up better than others during the (laughs) pandemic. And uh, and the richest man in the world is now the
0: French guy who uh, sells expensive handbags, etc. What do you, in that context, though, what do you think about the way in the United States that people retain or encourage talented people is there are it has there at the highest level academic salaries are, can be extremely large i think in england they aren't that way i think there's they're more regimented and and people justify that by, as a way of retaining people and encouraging some people to go in academia because um because and it's the way different universities steal people from other people um be, because mm-hmm. it becomes that kind of free market uh, mm. uh and and it's not that way in england how do you view that in, in in academia um well it's
1: going a bit that way in britain but at a lower level um but i think it's unfortunate really and the only reason it's the case is that um these um jobs in finance um are being paid so much more um that it is distorting the market um, it's, it's not it's not just um, academia that's being harmed uh, the civil service I mean in the uh, uh, in the UK Treasury um, uh, m- the mean age of the staff is very young which most of those age 35 um, can probably get five or ten times the salary by yeah. moving into uh, into banks or something like that and so um, we're all losing um, through this massive inequality. It's not. It's not just academia. Um, it's um, um, public service generally.
0: Okay. And what about um, what about the, the? You talk about. You say a further put off putting trend in in many countries is the pervasive audit culture and the deployment of ever more detailed performance indicators to quantify mm-hmm. our outputs. That's certainly that's yeah. certainly a put off the the amount of. Uh, m- Paper that needs to be done to to do anything instead of just being left alone to do your work, um, which is what most faculty would like in your country
1: um, you don't have quite the same system as as we do but but uh, it's certainly true that in academia, certainly in the economics um you've got to have published papers in a particular set of of journals in order to be taken seriously, and uh, that, that I think is not optimal really. Uh, and it's going to encourage lots of bright young economists to go and be journalists or such like. Um, well, so so that, that's that, that's one point I'd make. Um, and uh, uh, in the UK, uh, we, we have um, uh, bureaucracy, which means that even if you're in one of these sort of elite departments, then the amount of time you get for research is less than it used to be. Yeah. And also there are uh, um, so-called research assessment exercises which means that you've got to produce a certain amount of stuff within any three year period and so this this disincentivizes very long term projects so one thing which I have written articles about recently although it's only briefly mentioned in the book is um, uh, whether it's perhaps no longer as true as it was that the research university which was invented by Humboldt to Germany in about 1820 is the best way. I mean, traditionally, that's what we've got in the best UK universities and the best American universities um, where people can do research in a fairly freewheeling way. They can get resources um, and uh, uh, they can do long-term projects. That's less easy now. They're more constrained. And I think we're moving to a stage when um, many of the best researchers, Um, are going to want to be in full-time research institutions. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some in the U.S. and and in the U.K. we have some very strong ones. In medical research, we have the famous molecular biology lab in Cambridge and others like that, uh, which provide better conditions for long-term blue skies research than any university does now. Yeah, uh, no,
0: I mean, they're much more attractive. And universities become more and more onerous because yes. of the regulations and I, I I don't want to dwell on this, but I do want to ask because I don't know if it's the case in the UK, I, w- I want to move to the teaching at the very end here but. Um, the one of the things that's becoming more and more difficult for for scientific young scientists is these requirements now most uh, to, to, to get a job uh, to get a faculty position or a grant, you have to yes. demonstrate that you've been actively involved in encouraging inclusivity diversity and equity and you have to actually write a long statement and in mm-hmm. regardless of the fact that some string theorist who's been you know uh, who's b- been a graduate student working on equations in 11 dimensions and then and then does exceptional mathematical work as a postdoc in order to be applied has to show how the work they're doing has they've actively been contributing to that and that's a farce i mean and yes. and, and yes. it's it, it's it it will dissuade not that these aren't important issues but peop, but but it's not a central facet of the training or 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 should it necessarily be the the, uh, the academic training of someone in certain scientific disciplines, and that's turning people off in the united States anyway
1: it's imposed by the university or by the nsf it's it's uh, both.
0: The NSF is is now doing it, but the universities are doing it more. I I did a study of tw- last year of twenty five job a- announcements in physics, and twenty four of them required a detailed statement showing how one in 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 a wide variety of areas that sh- showing how one's work and one's activities have did, uh, did contributed to, uh, yes. explicitly to that. Yes. No, as we said
1: earlier, I mean the department as a whole should be. Doing, doing that, but some individuals are bad at it, some are good at it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Nor can we expect a junior faculty member or junior a postdoc to, to have the experience or expertise to, to necessarily know enough to, to be able to have done significant work in that area. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Young scientists. It's what like, uh, you know, as a communicator, I had a young scientists, Many of them say, how can I do what you've done, you know, mm-hmm. in your life or whatever? And I always tell them the same. If you're a good young scientist, do science. That's what you should mm-hmm. be doing. And then if there are opportunities will arise for you to write or communicate yeah. if that's your interest. But yeah. if you have a talent, you should be doing that. And then you and then you'll have the opportunities later on if to make the world a better place in different ways. Um whether it's you know, whether it's increasing diversity or increasing communication. Yeah, yeah. We're agreement? Okay. But now yes. let me ask you about teaching, which is the last part of your of your of the book and one that's probably teaching and education in general. And and I think the statement you make about research institutions could be made more generally i it was a revelation to me when i lived in when i spent time in switzerland to realize that in switzerland they encourage only 15% of the students in high school to go to, on to university you know mm-hmm. i used to think of university as something we should encourage everyone to go to but i've now mm-hmm. come around and i don't i think for most people university is not necessarily the, even if you know the best intellectual course that for many people, most of the students I see go into universities have no idea why they're there. It's four years of more or less, you know, country club living, and and, and before they go out in the real world, and and that targeted institutions that targeted skills uh, and interests, would, like they do in Switzerland, might be a better better solution for many people. What do you think of that?
1: Well, I think that's true, but I also think that uh, uh, everyone in the universities. Should have a somewhat broader curriculum. Ah, uh, yes. Well, in America, you, you, do, you do have majors and minors and all yeah, that. Uh, yeah. in, the, in the UK, um, we, we have a more serious problem, a narrow curriculum. We have uh, fairly narrow in u- universities um, in most cases. Um, but worse than that, um, in high schools, we have specialization at the age of 16, where you can drop science completely um yeah
0: yeah no i mean it, in england that was the thing you could yeah. you could you and could it, fo you could have a that. physics degree and just take physics classes or something and yes, it and it, yeah. you could never do that in the states and by the way that no. was we we used to have this uh, that was one of the reasons why i was excited once in working in a university in england or, or or lecturing in it which you didn't like because it was a private university but but um but the attraction to me at the time was it was a the first uk university that looked like a liberal arts college to me it was a private university it's no longer that but but yes, um, yes. And 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 students of all types, for example, had to take some science literacy, which is what I taught. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's, it, it's certainly, we're seeing it more and more um, that need to specialize early on. And that does turn off some people and also gives you an impediment because it means if you haven't specialized early on, you're at a disadvantage compared to some people who have. And well, so you may not heard, have gone uh, to a high school that allowed them to. Sorry, go on. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, certainly in England, the uh, um, specialisation at the age of 16 lasts two years. um, And um, uh, one downside of this is that if you're badly taught science before the age of 16 and you drop it, then that forecloses the option of moving on at 18 to a university where you could specialise in science. And so that's obviously bad. um, But far better to have something more like the International Baccalaureate where you have a... wide menu as a curriculum all the way up to 18 but then of course the universities have to play ball to the extent of uh, lowering their requirements of how much you know in your what's going to be your major area and so yeah and,
0: and, and yeah, i think both, needs, and so absolutely both
1: and, things are needed in in britain um and also the other point is that um we shouldn't fetishize the level reached after a three or four year bachelor's degree yeah. and uh, uh, and uh, uh, allow uh, people to drop out with dignity after two years and come back in and move around and uh, I'm glad to say in Britain there is a move towards this now and to uh, give people a grant for a total of three years at any stage in their life so That would they can, be, uh, that,
0: would be a, that I mean that, uh, that was a suggestion in your book which I found amazing. The idea, mm-hmm. well, I think the whole thing that we want to encourage is lifelong learning. This notion that somehow <laughs> you know you stop learning in university or in high school is just the worst thing because most of us, yeah. and, and I've said it, I'll say it to you, I'm, I'm, I am don't know if it's the same for you, but I certainly learned much more physics after my PhD than before. Oh, yeah, and, me too. And, and, and in my case, I've been a professor of astronomy as well as physics, but while it may be apparent to you, it won't be apparent to many others, I never took an astronomy course in my life as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as yeah. It, it, yes. I, You know, I learned it all after the fact, but mm-hmm. um, what little I know. And a lot of it I learned from you, of course, but anyway. Um, uh, but what about this so lifelong learning is important and the and and offering people the opportunities when i one of the reasons i chose the university i did i a, a personal case is that i liked physics and i liked science but i to liked, liked history and um my that university offered what was called a general science course where you could do equal numbers of of courses and it attracted me ultimately i discovered that I had to specialize eventually, and I, I moved. I, after a couple of years, I went into math and physics. But, but that attractiveness to people who don't know what they want to do yes. is particularly important because not everyone knows what they want to do when they're 18. Yes. And of course, many
1: are going to uh, be generalists in their career. They're going to go into business or, or government service, then uh, um, uh, they're not going to be specialists. And therefore, the broader the background they've acquired at university, the better.
0: Now, in terms of improving, the, the, as you point out, we need to have better teachers. The real problem, as you say, ultimately, in education is the lower levels, is is trying to get educate young people. And and we need to do that more effectively as well as convincing as well as providing people the opportunity, as you point out, for lifelong learning. And I think the idea of giving people grants so they can spend three years at a later time in education is unbelievably interesting, especially as people live longer And Mm -hmm. and 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 we don't necessarily want everyone in the workforce at the same time. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, but what do you think about in terms of getting back to this question of salaries in order to in science, frankly, one of the problems of having uh, uh, I know in the public education system of getting good science teachers is that most of the people who are trained in science have better and opportunities with more money to work somewhere else and therefore I've argued that not that while science may not be more intrinsically useful than art, history, that you or or maybe or so English or you know it, it, I certainly don't think it is. You, pro- you probably have to pay at, in the public education system. Science teachers more in order to make it attractive because simply they have other options that an English major might not have. What do you think of that?
1: Well, I think it's a pity if you have to have differential salaries. But I, I, from what I know, um, in many states, American teacher salaries are extremely low.
0: Yeah, so
1: I find it hard to attract people. Um, so I, I think uh, uh, an overall raise in the in the level is going to be uh, absolutely. Be and then you point um, out that the I real it,
0: thing is not just teaching in schools, but teaching outside of schools and the need for scientists to reach out broader. I think that's one of the main messages of your book from beginning to end is that scientists not only should take an interest in policy at government level, but again, not every scientist, but the scientific community should be working hard to reach out beyond the the, the traditional realm of education, but to the public at large, because they're the ones yeah. who ultimately need to make the decisions in electing yes. politicians or or creating advocacy advocacy groups. As yes. I say, yes. it, it, 3% of the population gets interested in something. And I think mm-hmm. you've argued very strongly for that, that 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 we need we need that holistic approach and we need scientists to speak out. And we also need to have information more accessible. I think one of the things that you point out, which is really, really interesting, is that the you know, in physics in science, we have this thing called the archive, which makes mm-hmm. all for information that's happening in science, anyone can go and and I often recommend even on Twitter that people go to the archive to see something, whether they'll understand or not. At least they have the opportunity to go to it. But such things don't exist in the humanities. So that right. Such, right. Yeah. and uh, what can we do? Yes,
1: but I think more generally the uh, the the role of online versus live teaching in universities is a is an open question. I mean, I know, uh, um, the other university. In, in Arizona, ASU, of yeah, course, yeah. and uh, I admire hugely what they, what they do. And, uh, and I think these so-called uh, MOOCs, massive online yeah. learning, um, I think as standalone uh, activities, they only work for mature part-time vocational courses, you know, people who yeah. want to learn some special techniques. Uh, but on the other hand, I think they can be um, a feature uh, of um, uh, a university course. I mean, and yeah. uh, I, I would say that if you think of a typical university course, um, I don't think much would be lost if the basic big lectures that may be given to a class of two or 300 um, are online, because there there's no real feedback um, during the lecture. And, um, uh, and and I think if they're well-prepared and online, and, yeah. and then uh, of course, if they're especially good, then they can be made available publicly, and uh, I'm not uh, and certainly in Cambridge. I think we should do that. We should we don't want to set up satellite campuses in the Middle East or yeah. like that, but, but to make available freely, um, especially good lecture courses. Well, just like um, MIT made Walter Lewin's physics yeah, course. Yeah, yeah, uh, Then then that's a good thing, and it's good for the university. Just like if a professor writes a good textbook, which is widely used. That's a positive thing for the university, and so in the same way, uh, I think if the big lectures were more carefully prepared and um, were widely used in uh, universities around the world where they don't have such a strong faculty, that
0: would be great. That would be great. If and the the problem with the university is they want to get some financial, you know, they they it's always finances, and they want to charge no, but people.
1: They, but, but, yes,
0: but but they but they they don't if. Um, uh, if, if
1: you write a textbook
0: no, I know, I know I agree with I'm just saying the real the reality i having been involved in this very issue at that university um mm-hmm. the, yes. the, it i I will tell you that online courses were viewed as much as a money making activity as a pedagogical as much as a pedagogical yes. tool and and yes. and that's the unfortunate thing, but I think you're absolutely right, but then of course, I think where we both agree is that the human that a purely online education is, is is not a good, not not can't compete. And that's true at all levels. I, I, the saddest of part it, of the pandemic was so many yes. young, young kids um, yes. missed that experience of, of, of direct interaction and community so the interaction. At
1: school, school level, of course, uh, you need the real interaction. And I think at undergraduate level, you have the, the flipped classroom and, uh, and the tutorials and things. That's fine. But I think it's the big lecture where there's yeah. no feedback, really. Um, and then the, and
0: then the biggest lecture being the biggest audience being the world and that scientists need to communicate gotcha. and reach out and get people excited and i think one of the things that i admire about you so much besides your distinction in a scientist and i told you earlier on that i used to I, i'll tell it publicly now I, that you know when i was first learning astronomy about astronomy for the use in physics i learned that there were certain people whose writings i could go to and i could trust and you were one of them And i think that's a that's that that was incredibly valuable to me but but let me end with the last quote from your book which is the quote from margaret mead which is that never doubt that a small group of thoughtful committed citizens can change the world indeed is the only thing that ever has i'm not sure if i agree with the second part but i think the first part is very important and i think we're all very lucky that you're one of that small group of thoughtful committed citizens who are trying to change the world
1: I think you've got to actually uh uh be more charismatic and interact with the wide public via the media and uh that's why one has to admire people like david attenborough etc. Uh, absolutely
0: and, and uh Carl and, Sagan. And, Carl Sagan. Sagan. And, and and i think it's what mode moti- i know it's what motivates a number of us and and uh anyway thank you for taking the time i i tried to you know there's so many interesting ideas there i wanted to do justice to them and and i think it'll be the, the the conversation will be very useful for many people and it's always a pleasure and i'm i know it's very late for you right now and thank you for for even focusing for so long on this it's always a pleasure okay well good to be in touch i hope you enjoyed today's conversation this podcast is produced by the origins project foundation a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit OriginsProjectFoundation.org.